Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Here's pastor, teacher, and author, Phil Moser. Well, we are in Palm Sunday preparing for the Passion Week. For the last, I don't know, probably six or seven years, whatever series we're in, I like to stop when we get to Easter week and not just make it all about Resurrection Sunday, but for just a moment, engage the entire week. And that's because I think you see things that are happening, and even tonight you're going to learn, I saw something I'd never seen before. Even though I've thought through Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter in the past, I all of a sudden discovered something, and I said, wow, that is so amazing. So it's always good to just stop and realize what happened with Christ coming in on Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Resurrection Sunday. So the set that's behind you, that's all for Good Friday. Um, We're looking forward to you joining us uh, this coming Friday. But will you stand with me for the reading of the Word? We are in Matthew 21, Matthew 21, and I'll be reading there um, about the triumphal entry, verses 1 through 11. Oh, I forgot to tell you something really cool, okay? There's a part in this passage tonight where the crowd says something, okay? So that's going to be highlighted in yellow. That's going to be your responsibility to jump in and speak, okay? I'm just going to go silent when I get there. So when you see the yellow, um, and by the way... uh, um, It actually says they shouted certain things. Okay, so play the part for us, all right? When we play that, when we read the scriptures there, when you see the yellow show up, that's, those are your lines, all right? As we read the word together. Matthew chapter 21, begin reading at verse, begin reading there at verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on the colt at the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went. And did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, That's great. You may be seated. That's probably kind of what it sounded like for just a minute there, right? It kind of woke you up that they were shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Let's talk about preparing for Passion Week. Now, before I give you the lesson that I found this week that I just got so fired up about getting a chance to share, okay? I just want to review the week, okay? Because sometimes we just know that it's Palm Sunday, we wave some palm branches as a kid, and uh, then we all of a sudden showed up for Good Friday, and then it was Easter, and that was it, okay? So I just want to walk you through what happens in this week. By the way, there are 109 events in the gospel that are related to Jesus prior to the final week. 
109 events. You can kind of track them from healings to conversations to sermons to interaction. There's 109 events. There are 42 events that happen in this week. That's right. One third of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are about this week. You just got to let that settle in for a little bit because we tend to think that it's about Jesus, like healing people and preaching lots of messages. And what I want to remind you is one third of the events happen in this week. So let's just unpack them briefly. Here we go. Sunday through Friday. Sunday, we find out that there was a triumphal entry, and that's where Jesus comes in. And we just read that passage. Um, Jesus walks up to the temple, Mount Mark tells us, and then he looks around, and then he goes back, and they go out to Bethany, and then he comes in on Monday morning. And on Monday morning, he does two things. He has this temple cleansing, and he exercises control over the temple mount. Okay? Now, to truly understand what's happening there, I've got to take you back to what it would have looked like in Herod's time. See, this outer area is called the Court of the Gentiles, that whole area. And by the way, um, this is about 36 acres that comprises that. And this is perfect for you to imagine because we're on 12 acres here. And it's about the shape of the Temple Mount. So just kind of enlarge the, our property from Breakneck and Jackson all the way back to right field in the softball diamond times three. And you're going to get a feeling for how big this is. It is in the court of the Gentiles where all those tables are set up, and the high priests have made that their shopping mall. That's right. And this week, Passover for them in Herod's temple would be like Black Friday. Okay. It is crowded, and they are selling a lot of stuff, and they are making a lot of money. And the high priest made that money, and then they bartered with Rome so that they could return to their positions of authority, you get it, so that they can make more money. Right? They're, not, they're about the people. They're there about making money. It is in this court of the Gentiles, that whole 30-some acres, that Jesus starts turning over tables. Now, in John chapter 2, that's an earlier occurrence where he did the same thing. At the beginning of his ministry, he walked in and he flipped over some tables. And it actually says that there he got together a leather whip and just started driving people out. Now, I don't know what he does here that he uses the leather whip. But what I do want to show you is this, that he doesn't only cleanse it, but Mark tells us he takes control of it. In fact, we're reading in Mark's gospel here, and it says he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables and the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He controls it. That's pretty phenomenal. It's 36 acres, right? And he doesn't allow anybody to come in there if they're carrying something through to sell. By the way, let me take you back to this picture again. You say, well, why did they have a court of the Gentiles if it was a Jewish religious site? They had a court of the Gentiles because it was God's intention from the Old Testament that the Gentiles, those who weren't Jewish, would come with their needs and they would be prayed for by the Jewish people. And now you understand why Jesus is so upset and why he says this was to be a house of prayer, not the actual temple building itself, but the place where they had set up their tables because Gentiles, unbelievers, were supposed to come there and say, I got a problem. Can I get somebody to pray for me? And now when they came into the court of the Gentiles, all they could find was people selling and making money. That's why Jesus overturns it. He not only cleanses the temple, but he controls that area. And that brings us to Tuesday. Because once it's cleansed and once it's cleaned, then he starts to teach almost immediately. And once he starts to teach, he gets starts, they st- the, the people who aren't making money anymore say, hey, listen, on what authority is he doing this? And so they start to ask him questions. You can actually track those questions. The Pharisees ask a question, the Sadducees ask a question, and the scribes ask a question. 
and they just keep sending guys up there to ask him questions, and every time he stumps them, right? every time he answers them in a way that they were not prepared for, and it says at the end of that time that they quit asking him questions, and they all left, and people started listening. In fact, Jesus um, questions, but there's something else going on there, but let me show you this intersection. And remember, the court of the Gentiles is the bigger section, but what I've circled there is what we call the court of the women, and that's the area where teaching took place. And just for you to fathom how big that area is, some 6,000 people could gather there, and that's what's happening. Literally, it looks like this. There's thousands of people. These are Jewish people, not Gentiles. Jewish people gathering there while Jesus is teaching because he stumped all the questions that have come, and now he starts to teach, okay? And he teaches, And that's going to come, you're going to come back to that in just a second. And that brings us to Thursday. There's two events that happen on Thursday. Oh, by the way, Judas cuts his secret deal. Somewhere in that 6,000 people, Judas slips off, finds the high priest, arranges to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And that's a secret deal, the back boardroom thing that Judas does there. When we get to Thursday... There's two places, the upper room and the garden. By the way, if you come Good Friday, we'll explain to you how the upper room tables look over here. If you thought that, that, uh, that Leonardo da Vinci got it right when he set up 12 men at a table with high European back chairs, I'm just going to tell you, those things weren't even created back then, okay? These were tables that were low, like this, and they would celebrate Passover at what we call a triumvirate table, which is shaped like that. It had three sides. Jesus would sit in one location as the master or the host, and everybody else would gather around him. That's the kind of table it would have been. Low to the ground, they're on pillows. It's the, if, if, you're a young, if, you're a, if you're an elementary school kid tonight, it's the one time in history where you were encouraged to put your elbow on the table, okay? Because you'd lay down and you'd put your elbow on the table. So, hey, listen... If uh, mom and dad see your elbows on the table, just say, hey, listen, I'm trying to be like Jesus. Okay, so there you go. Okay, but that's what was happening back there, right? This was Thursday, upper room, and then you may remember Jesus left the upper room and went to the garden. He left the upper room uh, kind of abruptly because Judas left the upper room. Why? To go get the soldiers to come and arrest Jesus, and he comes back to the upper room, and Jesus isn't there because he's off in the garden. You can kind of feel Judas's embarrassment, like, I don't know where he is. He, let, he, he was right here. And then they find him in the garden. And that brings us to Friday. And Friday is comprised of trials, a crucifixion, and a burial. Six trials take place. Three Jewish trials and three Roman trials. First, Jesus meets with Annas. Then he meets with Caiaphas. Then he meets with the Sanhedrin. And then they charge him over to Rome. And with Rome, he meets first with Pilate, just kind of like what you see back here. And then he meets with Herod. And then he meets with Pilate again. And then he's crucified. And all of that happens in one week. Forty-two events of your Gospels occur in this final week. That's just to set the context, okay? What I want to share with you today, tonight, this morning, <laughs> is, something, is something that I never saw, absolutely never saw. Because Palm Sunday always feels like it's about the king, and it is about the king. But he's just not titled on Palm Sunday as the king. You ready for this? You read these words, and I bet you didn't even catch them. Here they are. Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your what? King is coming to you. But in verse 11, this is what you read. And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus. 
Now, if he's the king and he's inaugurated, and the first thing he does when he comes to Jerusalem, I think the first thing he should do if he's the king is he should go up to Herod's palace and say, hey, move over, I'm the king. Or maybe he could go to Pilate, the Roman governor's mansion, and say, hey, move over, I like this place, I'm the king. But he doesn't go there. Verse 12 says that Jesus entered the temple. Who goes to the temple? The priest. The priest goes to the temple. Palm Sunday, if you've always thought it's just about the king, the text is telling you it's about the prophet, priest, and king. Jesus is a prophet, he is a priest, and he is a king. And when we begin to unpack that, I'm going to tell you that's not the only place that occurs. That occurs, actually, Jesus embraces that teaching way back in Matthew chapter 12 when his whole ministry starts to shift. Remember, there's a lot of crowds that follow him, and all of a sudden, people start drifting away from him because they don't like the way he's talking to them. You'll see why in a second. And they start drifting away, and Jesus in Matthew 12, that's when he starts to teach with parables, remember? And he says, listen, the parables are there so that those who don't want to listen won't understand, and those who do want to listen will understand. That's why the parables are there. And this Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, three things. Watch this. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here in reference to himself. A little later in verse 41, he says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. What was Jonah in the Old Testament? He was a prophet, right? And he said, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. What was Solomon? He was a, and there it is, prophet, priest, king. And the ESV study Bible captures it this way. When Jesus says something greater than, Jesus elevates himself and his message to be greater than the three greatest institutions in Israel, the prophet, priest, and king. But here's what I want you to see tonight. Here it is. You ready? When we look at Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, we, each of these titles of Jesus focuses our attention on who he is and what he means to us. It's so good. It's just not about learning something else for Bible trivia again. It's about looking at something about Jesus that we may not have discovered and then saying, wow, that's what he means to me. So let's talk about it. Here we go. Jesus was a prophet. He can be trusted to speak truth so we should believe him. Okay. One of the things you need to know about the prophets of the Old Testament, by the way, the, 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 the prophet, the name prophet is used some 200 times. The word prophet is used some 200 times in the Bible. That's important because you can see that there's kind of a pattern for what a prophet is supposed to do. A prophet wasn't only foretelling truth. He wasn't only a fortune teller like that. He, was actually, he wasn't only future teller. He was actually proclaiming truth. He just wasn't giving you the future. He was also proclaiming truth. And that's why sometimes in the, when you're reading the 17 prophetic books in the Old Testament, you're thinking, this doesn't say anything about the future. No, he was a proclaimer of truth. They were proclaimers of truth. And sometimes they were pretty aggressive in that proclaiming of truth. Now, if you've ever read Matthew, just know this, that we have the triumphal entry in Matthew 21, and then we have Jesus doing some of his strongest prophetic ministry, you will see, like just back to back, back to back, back to back. I'm going to give you an example of that. And here it is. Just know that this is Jesus' teaching in the week, this Passion Week, the week that we think of him as the king. But this sounds like prophetic, like an Old Testament prophet preaching here. He says, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You don't let them in. 
For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. That's a convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Okay, that's a tough message. Okay. That's a, re- yeah, wow is right. Okay. And I'm sure the Israelite, the, the Jewish people there said, wow, okay, in, in Hebrew, and I'm not sure what that is. All right. Here's the picture I want you to see. This is prophetic preaching. Jesus in the Passion Week is more than just a king that is rejected. He's a prophet that's preaching truth again and again and again and again. And because he can be trusted to speak truth as a prophet, we should believe in him. By the way, this is just throughout this entire Passion Week, right up into Good Friday. Remember that when he was in Pilate's portico up here, this area that represents, um, if you've ever seen the, the portrait um, that, that's called uh, Behold a Man, that picture where Jesus is there, he's, he's, his, his upper body stripped, there's whips across his back, he's got a crown of thorns, Pilate's standing next to him saying, would you take Jesus or would you take Barabbas? Okay. Do you remember what Jesus says in that moment? He says, he says Pilate asks him, are you a king? And he says, you have said that I'm a king, right? And I am. And this is the truth. And Pilate says, what is? Here is a prophet preaching truth. And and the governor says, I don't even know what truth is. A prophet would never speak like that. A prophet would say, this is the truth. Believe me. And that's what Jesus does. He is a prophet. He can be trusted to speak truth, so we should believe him. I was doing a men's uh, retreat for a church up in North Jersey, uh, Friday, yes, yesterday, Friday and Saturday. That's why I said my day is completely upside down here, okay? But I met this guy who I was talking about the importance of believing in Jesus' promises. And he shared with me, he pulled me aside and he said, Phil, I got to tell you something. When you were talking about believing in the promises of God, clinging to them, he said, I went through a really tough time um, with some health concerns with my wife. And he said, it devastated me she was the spiritual rock in our home. And, and he said, and, and, and it devastated our kids. And he said, when she first experienced all of those physical and mental things, he said, I didn't have the promises of God and I fell apart. And he said, after that, while she was in there, I started to memorize promises of God. In fact, he said, he said, I just shared this at a, at a Bible college recently. He said, I told them that sometimes I would fall asleep on the couch with the promises of God on the TV screen in front of me, and I would look at them when I was going through this difficult time, and I would say, true or false, that's true. And then he said, another one to flip, I'd rehearse it, I'd memorize it. I'd say, true or false, that's true. That's true. And he said, then she got better, and then she got sick again. And he said, when she got sick again, I was armed with the promises of God. And the difference for me, he said, was so radical it was still painful. It was hard. It was difficult. But I had, he said, the way I went through it was so different because I could believe the promises of God. You must understand, when you think of Jesus as a prophet, he can be trusted to speak truth, so we should believe him. This is why Jesus says over and over again, he turns us back to the word. Let's talk about Jesus as a priest. He is a priest. He can be trusted to reconcile us to God the Father, so we should worship him. That's right. He can be trusted to reconcile us to God the Father, so we should worship him. 
In fact, Hebrews kind of unpacks this discussion. But the Old Testament priests were Levitical priests, and that meant that they offered certain sacrifices so that God would look at those sacrifices and say, okay, um, I'm going to overlook the sins that are here. I'm going to see that death of an animal as kind of like, a, kind of like an early prepayment for what's going to happen when Jesus comes, and I'll forgive these sins. and call it the Day of Atonement. That's what was happening, right? Like the Levitical priest, Jesus offered a sacrifice to satisfy the law of God when he offered himself for our sins. Unlike the Levitical priest, who had to continually offer sacrifices over and over again, Jesus only had to offer a sacrifice once, gaining eternal redemption for all who come to God through him. Let me see if I can help you see this. Remember that Temple Mount I showed you? In that Temple Mount picture, if you went through one more wall past the court of the women, you would walk in where there was an altar there. Where that altar was is where the, where the Jewish priest, the Levitical priest, would, would take lambs and they would sacrifice them and they place them there. And if you wanted to celebrate Passover, which was what you do to remember what had happened in, in, in Egypt in your escape, what you would do is you would bring the lamb to the temple and the Levitical priest would, would, um, would kill those lambs and they would cut off a portion, put it on the altar, and they would send you home with a portion for you to cook. And that was Passover. Josephus, a historian, tells us that at one stage, at the time of Christ, there were 250,000 lambs sacrificed. And that's how they know there were roughly a couple million people because they say, okay, 250,000 lambs, that's about a lamb for a family of three or four, and that's how we get to two million people. So you can kind of see how that's working, right? There were so many lambs sacrificed that literally the Kidron Valley, the, the, Cree, the Kidron Brook that ran down off the, uh, off the Temple Mount, that that would run red with blood, that the river, literally the little brook, would run red with blood. And you may remember in John chapter 18, when Jesus leaves the upper room and he walks down there to the Garden of Gethsemane, he walks over that brook, looking down at the blood of all those lambs, knowing momentarily that he's about to become the sacrifice for us. It's a remarkable thing. The writer of Hebrews tells us this about Jesus as the great high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. I love that. You and I are set free because Christ said, as the high priest, I will not sacrifice a lamb. I will sacrifice myself. And that's why verse 16 goes on to say, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. It's not about your works. It's not about your ability. It's not about the fact that you didn't do bad things last week. It's not about the fact that you've done uh, 90 days without committing some kind of sin. This is it. It's the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is about us coming to Christ who forgave us because he sacrificed himself on the cross. Passion Week. It's not just about Jesus as king. It's about Jesus as prophet, priest, and yes, it is about Jesus as king too. As king, he can be trusted to rule well, so we should follow him. That's right. There's never a king, I think, in the history of the world that will be more benevolent, more loving, more caring than Jesus. It's hard to, it's just hard for us to, to grasp Leadership that is so sacrificial. Uh, we live in a world 
where everybody that attempts to lead in any form of government pretty much makes it about themselves, right? It's about themselves. And by the way, that's not just the way it is here. That's the way it is in other nations. That's why Putin makes it about himself. That's why various dictators in China or Korea suddenly think they're dictators for life because they believe they are in some way have, have been elevated. It's all about them, right? This king, Jesus, is not like any of those kings. He can be trusted to rule well. He can be trusted to care with your best interest in view. So we should follow him. Now, let me give you what is uh, kind of, you can trace this all the way through the Gospels, Okay. These are what I call four steps in the King Jesus test, okay? And we see it in the Gospels, and it's why, when you look all of a sudden at Passion Week, you say, how did they get from Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, like in in five days? How did they get from there to there? I will tell you, that is their pattern throughout, and I want to show you that. Jesus claims the people receive, Jesus tests, the people reject. This is the four steps in the King Jesus test. So here's the first one. To the Jewish people... Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. Now, go with me to Luke chapter 4, okay? And I'm going to show you this. This is early in Christ's ministry. This is way back at the beginning of his ministry. Luke chapter 4. And it sets up how Jesus always tests the people by claiming to be Messiah. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And if you're looking at Luke chapter 4, if you look with me at verse 17, just let me set up the context for you, okay? Jesus... Uh, is from Nazareth. He comes back to the synagogue in Nazareth. Everybody knows him. Hey, Jesus, where you been? What have you been doing? And, and, and Jesus, um, all of a sudden, is asked to read in the synagogue. So he sits down, not the temple. The synagogue is the place of teaching, okay? He sits down and he begins to read. And he takes a scroll. Now, we don't know in, in history if there was an assigned reading that day in the scroll, and he just happened to drop in on Isaiah 60 on that day, or if Jesus opened the scroll and read from this particular passage because he chose and turned to it. But we do know this, that he read it, and this is what he read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now this, Isaiah 61, is a messianic passage, okay? People knew, the, Israel, the Israelites knew that when you read this passage, you were talking about the coming king. Okay? And this is what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And look at verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, just for a moment, understand this. Everybody is watching Jesus, okay? You haven't even probably seen him. Some of the people there in Nazareth haven't seen him in a number of years. They hear he's been doing miracles. They hear he's been teaching, okay? And this is what he says. The eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, verse 20, and he began to say to them, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus saying, I'm the Messiah. Now for just a moment, imagine what that would be like. You're sitting there, you're saying, wow, I used to play baseball with him, okay? Like some guy probably sat there and said, hey, he chose me to be on his team, all right? Like, I can remember that. Like, you can just picture what it's like to all of a sudden have someone read a messianic passage and say, it's fulfilled. And I want you to see that what happens next is this. The people receive him superficially. They receive him superficially. Look at verse 22. There it is, right? And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. They just said, wow, we've met the Messiah. He's here. 
He just said he was here and, and we believe him, right? And whenever that happens, Jesus doesn't get real, test somebody. This is Luke doing this, but you can do this throughout any of the gospels. Jesus says, hey, I'm the Messiah. Normally, by the way, he claimed to be the Messiah, not by saying it, but by prof- prophecy. So can, because Rome actually is overruling Jerusalem, and Jesus has things he's got to get done in his ministry before he dies on the cross. And so he always kind of proclaims to be the Messiah in using Old Testament prophetic literature. So that when, that when if someone said, hey, listen, you know, there's a guy down there claiming to be king, you'd have, the Romans would say, how do you know he's claiming to be king? Does he have a sword? No, he doesn't have a sword. How do you know he's claiming to be king? Because he's quoting from the Old Testament and saying it's him, right? And the, the Romans would say, who cares? Okay. But the Jewish people would know that he was claiming to be the Messiah. And they adore him. But I'll just tell you this, superficially. And so Jesus tests them sacrificially. He says, if you really want to follow me, let me talk to you. Now, you need to know something about Jewish people in Jesus' time. They believed largely that the only people who were going to heaven were those who were Jewish. And if you wanted to go to heaven, you had to come into their faith. And even then, you weren't going to get it quite like they got it, but you could get there, okay? But that's the image. Everybody else was a pagan, and they separated themselves from everybody else. So they believe... That, G, that, that, that only the Jewish people, the Israelites, are blessed by God and everybody else isn't blessed by God. So here's Jesus' test. Watch this. This is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Chapter 4 of Luke, verse 25. Oh, let me go back. Verse 24. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. You say, wait. He's accepted. Everybody wants to be with him. They, they just adore him. They just said, they're standing in awe of who he is. But he predicts that they're not going to because of what he says next. Verse 25, and this is what he says. He says, um, but in the truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. That's, there were a lot of Jewish women, and they were widows, and they were in trouble. But when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent by God to none of them, but only to Zarephath, that is a Gentile person in the land of Sadad, to a woman who was a widow. He's testing them. Like, do you believe that God's interested in Gentiles? And I'll just say it, these Jewish people here were, were racist. They believed it was only about them and anybody else they weren't going to accept. And then he goes on to say, watch this, verse 27. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of the prophet Elisha, And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. God didn't cleanse through Elisha. The Jewish lepers, he cleansed Naaman the Syrian, a pagan leper. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that what it says? No. No, it says what? They were filled with wrath. Bingo. That's exactly right. Because when Jesus tests you and say, are you willing to give up what you believe? Do you trust me? You said you wanted to follow me. You said I was the king. I claimed to be the king. You said you'd follow me. I tested you. Will you give up what you believe? Okay. The people reject him adamantly all the time. What happens in Passion Week between blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord and crucify him is the same thing that has been happening throughout the entire gospel. Okay. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Through prophecy, the people receive him superficially. Jesus tests them sacrificially. They're unwilling to make sacrifices, and people reject him adamantly. This is where you got to ask yourself a great question. You ready? 
Do you accept Jesus superficially or do you accept him sacrificially? Do you say, I like Jesus. He'd be a good mascot. Okay? As long as he gives me what I want, I'm good with Jesus. Okay? But what if he starts asking you to make sacrifices for him? What would those sacrifices look like? I don't know. Maybe he asked you to, to not engage in conversations that you've been having with other friends. Maybe he asked you to step out by faith and share your faith with somebody else, even though you may, it may cost you that relationship. Jesus tests you and asks you, what will you give up? And if you step back and say, that's enough, I'll take Jesus at arm length, right? then you are doing what the Jewish people did here. You're rejecting him. Adamantly. Jesus tests us. That's what he does. Let's go back real quickly and just see it again. He is the king. He can be trusted to rule well so we can follow him. Can I tell you this? Here's the idea behind tonight's lesson. Each of the titles of Jesus, prophet, priest, king, focuses our attention on who he is. As a prophet, he's going to tell us the truth. As as a priest, he's going to sacrifice his life for us. And as the king, he is worthy of being followed. In fact, I would just remind you again, he can be trusted, he can be trusted, he can be trusted. You see it there? He is a prophet, he can be trusted. He is a priest, he can be trusted. He is a king, he can be trusted. That's what prophet, priest, and king tell us about who Jesus is. What does it tell us about us? That we should believe in him that we should worship him, that we should follow him, whatever he asks us to do. The joy of uh, a tree falling on a power line is that I was in here earlier this morning getting ready to preach, and because nobody showed up, okay, I all of a sudden looked at this set and understood something that I hadn't seen before. The set was here for Good Friday, but suddenly in the Passion Week, I noticed something. Here it is. Look at this. In the upper room where Jesus says, when he takes the cup, he says, this cup is the covenant of my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. He says, listen, this is for the forgiveness of sins. He's telling you right here in the upper room that he is the priest who is willing to mediate, that is, to reconcile us to the Father through what he's about to do on the cross. And then all of a sudden, I walked over here, because none of you were here, of course, and I stood right here for a second, I thought, what would it have been like to be, to be in, 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 in Pilate's place right here, where, where Jesus would have been right here, right? and hear Jesus say, Pilate, this is the truth. I am a king. Beaten, broken, crown of thorns on his head, but looking at Pilate and saying, I am the king. And then Pilate said, and then saying, And this is the truth, just like a prophet. And then I walked over here and I realized something. This place, the cross, has a placard above him that says, this is Jesus, say it with me, king of the Jews. Prophet, priest, king. The Passion Week gives you all of those elements just because God wants us to know that Jesus isn't just a king. He is a prophet who speaks truth. He is a priest who will give up his very life for us to reconcile us to God. And he is the king who says, take up your cross and follow me. 
Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word tonight. It's been a reminder that it's rich and it reveals things to us that we don't even know. Like we, we read these things all the time and we don't see them. And then all of a sudden, there they are, glaring at us. The coming in to the triumphal entry, he was called a prophet. And he went right to the temple because he was a priest. And he was riding on a donkey because he was the king. And it's such a reminder to us, Lord, that, that you are those things to us. This week, as we prepare for Good Friday, may we think about who and what you've done on our behalf. May it mean something to us, mean something in such a way that we want to follow, that we want to worship, that, that we want to believe in everything you tell us. We're grateful that all of these years later, we can still look back at the cross and find uh, our confidence in you and what you have done. Before I close tonight, and just with your heads bowed, I, I would just encourage you, if you've never thought about who Jesus was like that, um, he is the king who cared enough about his constituents, his people, that he was willing to die to restore them to his father. I would encourage you tonight, like the Bible just says you trust him. The Gospel of John uses the word believe some 90 times. It doesn't once use the word achieve. If you've been trying all of your life to get better, to be better, I just want to tell you, as many as believed in him, John said, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You simply need to say, Lord, I'm turning from what I was trying, and I believe that you died for me, and that you rose again. Take a moment and just, if that's your desire tonight, just take a moment and tell him that. Let him know that you're turning from your ways, and you believe in Jesus, that he died for you. Take a moment and tell him. Father, we are grateful that uh, you sent your son to die for us, and we're humbled. We pray, Lord, that we will look at this week differently than we have in the past as we prepare for this upcoming weekend. May it be glorious because we serve the King of glory. In Jesus' name. We trust you've been encouraged by today's lesson. For resources to help you move forward in Christ, we invite you to check out our website, aboutfbc.org or our Facebook page, Fellowship Bible, Mullica Hill.